This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Natasha Lester, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's lovely to be here again. It's so nice to be here live, isn't it? It is. I know. After three years of not being able to travel, I'm here in Sydney. Hooray. Yeah, yeah. I'm just loving having authors in so much. It really adds a sparkle to our day. It adds a sparkle to my day to get out from behind the desk and go and meet readers again. That's been the best part of this last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. That's true, actually. And readers love that, don't they? Yeah. It's so isolating typing out words every day and then to finally have these lovely people who genuinely want to talk to you and love your work and say nice things like there's nothing better actually. (laughs) One of the things that I think about when it comes to authors meeting readers, I think social media has helped that in such a big way. That's one of the benefits or the good things that's come out of social media. Do you agree? Oh, I do. And it's getting those messages from readers who say, oh, after I read your book, I went and did all this research on Catherine Dior or Lee Miller, that it's the best compliment to an author. And you would never have had that 20 years ago. You mm-hmm. would just hope that readers were reading your book and enjoying it. But now you kind of know that they are mm-hmm. and that they're taking that one step further and reading other books because of your book. And mm-hmm. that's honestly the best gift of all for a writer. Well, people often ask me why there's been such a popularity in women's fiction, in Australian fiction, in you know crime fiction. I do think because the readers are reading and having an opinion about what they're reading. Whereas many years ago, it really was the reviewers were the gatekeepers in print and they were largely white males and they were reviewing um, what they were reading and you really weren't getting enough from a reader unless they wrote your letter and that was few and far between. But now I think because authors are seeing or interacting with readers, publishers are interacting with readers, you're getting that feedback straight away. Yeah, and even, you know, they're coming onto your Facebook or your Instagram page and saying, oh, I've read this book, I think your readers would really like it because it reminded me of your style. And so you're able to disseminate information about other authors and other books and just it's like a big, beautiful community online, Mm -hmm. I think, um, is the big benefit of social media. Oh, do you know, I can't tell you. I'm forever grateful. Honestly, almost every day I wake up, every night, I read all the comments, every single night. When I wake up in the morning, I just feel so lucky to be connected with hundreds and thousands of readers because I really do think readers have empathy. Do you know, even when they don't like a book, yes. it's constructive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? So, yeah. oh, that didn't work for me for this, whatever reason. I saw one the other night where she said, oh, look, I started, this was really hard, I couldn't get into it. And she then she said, thank God I finished it yeah. because I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I wish I could beautiful. remember what book that was. And I just thought that is such an honest opinion. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, rather than an excoriating review in the newspaper. <laughs> exactly. A community of people 
who are happy to discuss a book, which is what you want. Mm. <laughs> and they're all about story. All right, okay, let's get, let's get on to you. Natasha is the best-selling author of many novels, including The French Photographer, The Riviera House, The Paris Secret. She used to be a marketing executive for L'Oreal and spends time doing fashion illustration and studying the history, which she writes about. I didn't know you were an illustrator as well. It was my COVID thing. Rather than bake sourdough because I'm a terrible cook, I decided to take up fashion illustration and I love it. So Had you not done that before? No, and I'd always been the person who said I can't draw. And so it's a great thing to take away for anyone who's wanting to write, you know, oh, I can't write. I thought I couldn't draw, but now I love it. It's my other creative outlet and it's, yeah, it's fabulous fun to draw the gowns that I'm writing about in the books. Oh, how wonderful. Well, I made the sourdough. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yes, I did. However, I started well before COVID. Yes. (laughs) I did step it up a little bit during COVID and I made some how to make sourdough videos, which are still used. But yeah, but anyway, there you go. Everybody is different. Now, do you know this morning I recorded a little video about you coming to visit us? (laughs) And I think that I said you're an ex Dior or Chanel. So I got that wrong on the video. Oh, that's right. I can be ex Dior. I can pretend. That's right. Why not? So Natasha's here to talk about her latest novel, The Three Lives of Alex Saint-Pierre. Did I pronounce that properly? Look, if you want to be really French, you could say Alex Saint-Pierre, but we'll just go with Alex Saint-Pierre. Why don't you pronounce it? Because you are really French. (laughs) The Three Lives of Alex Saint-Pierre. Oh, beautiful. It's a lavish and compelling historical fiction set during and after the Second World War. And the cover, I know this is audio, but the cover is absolutely divine. I love that photograph so much. Do you get, do you choose things? Do you, I mean, I know you've got fabulous publishers, but how much input do you have? So quite a few months before we um, start working on the cover, my publisher will ask me to send me the photos from my mood board. So I'll send her all of those because I have a mood board when I'm writing to kind of Uh, visualise the scenes and the characters. And that's our first kind of point of inspiration for the cover. But we've been really lucky. So the model on the cover there, her name is Ida. She's a Serbian model. You can find her on Instagram. And we have used her on four book covers now because it's really hard to find a woman who looks authentically of the era rather than someone playing dresser. Up. And so for this one, we just went straight to Ida and said, what have you got for us? Do you know what we like? Yeah. And she had this one and we went, oh my God, that could not be more perfect. So it went straight onto the cover and literally sailed through in about a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So, that's so interesting. Okay, mood board. I think this is probably the first time... I have heard that okay, in my podcast. right. Yeah, and you know I've interviewed over 400 yes. people and you know that we've, uh, I think it's an over a million downloads and sometimes I think I know everything there needs, <laughs> everything <laughs> that you need to know about writers and that's just blown me away. Talk okay. to me about that. Oh, well, maybe I'm a quite a visual person. Like mm. if my husband says to me, oh, you need to go north, I'm like, don't even, like, where, where is north? <laughs> like, I'm the same. Paint me a picture. So I start off by putting up photographs of the places because I know kind of where the novel might be. So I had the original House of Christian Dior on Avenue Montaigne on my first, um, on my board, first of all. Then I came across this amazing photograph of Lauren Bacall when she's about 18, sitting cross-legged in this jump suit and she's got one her chin propped on her hand and she's got no makeup on and she is young and gorgeous and spirited and fiery and I thought that is Alex Saint-Pierre that is going on my mood board and then I had photographs of all the amazing women who worked around Christian Dior including one incredible photograph Dior on the staircase that grand fabulous famous staircase at the Couture house and he's surrounded by his upper management team 
12 women, one oh, man. Oh, wow. Yep. And that wow. was what got me into the book. Yeah. Who are these women? Why don't we know who they are now? Why have we forgotten their names? Why is it only Dior's name on the awning above that couture house? Do you know, I've been so on about that in the mm. last couple of podcasts. I spoke to Philippa Gregory the other night. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love her. That would have been an absolute coup. Fantastic. Yeah, she was wonderful. It was via Zoom. Although I was in London recently and I don't know why I didn't do it in person. But anyway, I didn't even think of it. She is just so on and so spot on. But we were talking about history and how women had been written out of history. Tom Keneally was saying the other day that First Nations people were Mm. also written out of history. But now, with the surgeons of women's fiction, we're hearing about the women. And we're loving that, aren't we? Absolutely. And I always say, you know, it's sad in a way that there are so many women who were left out of history. But for me as a novelist, it means I can probably keep writing until I'm 100 because there will be so many women to find and to write about. Um, But, you know, Dior's a classic case in point. You know, who knew that the head of his studio, the head of his workrooms, the head of his uh, his assistant designer, the head of sales, they were all women. Mm. Um, I mean, I had no idea about that. And I bet Dior would not have been the icon he is today and as famous as he was without those women making him into that icon. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, without a doubt. Okay, so I want to go back to right back. Tell yep. me about where you grew up and tell me how it is you came to writing because I know that you worked at L'Oreal, so that's a big transition, right? Yeah, so I was that kid who went to the library every week, got out an armload of books, read them all cover to cover, went back, got another armload the following week. Then I started writing stories and poems. My mum has all of these like early manuscripts from seven-year-old Natasha. Um, and so from that age you were absolutely, writing? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to recreate that feeling that you have when you feel like you are lost in a book and in another world and in another way of life. So I wanted to be a writer from the time I knew that writers wrote books. Mm. But for me, when I left high school, there were no creative writing degrees in Perth. I was like, how do I be a writer? Well, and also you you don't. It just isn't one of those things, maybe more so now, but where you leave school and say, okay, well, I'm going to be a writer. Exactly. I'm going to be a published author. Yeah, and I think you need the emotional experience of a few years. Well, I did behind mm. me. Mm. So I worked in marketing for 10 years, worked for L'Oreal Paris, which was immensely fun. Um, was that here or did you work overseas It was in well? Melbourne. Um, right. But we interacted with the French a lot, so that was great for my French language skills. I had more lipsticks than any woman in her 20s could ever wear in an entire lifetime marvellous. Do you speak fluent French? Not quite fluent. Um, I've passed the test where I can go to university in France and not have to sit an English language competency test. so you're fairly fluent. Yes, but I don't think I could sit in a maths class in university (laughs) in Paris and know what was going on. Probably not in English either, though. (laughs) That'd be the same with me. I was in France recently. My friend who I was staying with is Australian and he's been living there for 20 years and he's self-taught. Yeah. But we, this is really funny and you've probably had this experience. We were both, you know, uh, lying around reading magazines one day just recently. And I said, what have you got? And he's like, oh, you know, the Times or this. Okay, well, can you can you pass me one when you're done? Yeah. Okay. So he throws a magazine across and it's in French. French. <laughs> and he, it was just completely yes. like, he just didn't even think of it, yep. that I'm not going to be able to read that magazine. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so similarly to you, we were just in France about three weeks ago and 
I was so used to speaking French when I was out on the streets at restaurants, etc., that we got back to the apartment at night and my kids yes. were like, Mummy, we can't understand French. And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I'm still speaking French. Stop. Yeah. English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I noticed about France? And I know, I think I, I posted something about this. And I know it sounds odd, but I think you'll get it. The French are so French. Yes. <laughs> Don't you think? Oh, they are. Yes. Yeah. You can walk along any street in Paris and go, okay, that's a tourist. That's a French person. Yeah, they really are. They're distinctive in that culture yes. that they've managed to hold, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting experience for me. I had such a great time. Anyway, back to you. So you you finish school and you know you want to be a writer, but how do you become a writer? Exactly. So we were in Melbourne. I was working for L'Oreal. My husband had to come back to Perth, which is where we're both from. Mm -hmm. So he'd followed me to Melbourne for my job. It seemed only fair that I follow him back to Perth for his job. And so I had to quit L'Oreal. I was suddenly unemployed for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those moments that I don't know that you get very often in your life. And you can probably relate to this, Cheryl, where you think, I'm going to do something different to Mm -hmm. what I've been doing. I'm Mm -hmm. going to do that thing that's been this dream in the back of my head for all mm. of these years. So I went back to university and did a master in creative writing and wrote wow. my first book. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you really studied the craft. Yeah, I did. And I went to university for two reasons. Firstly, I thought, well, okay, all very well and good to think you want to be a writer, but maybe it might be different. Mm. I might not actually enjoy it. Mm. And also I wanted to find out if I was any good at it because, mm. again, I might have been terrible at it and then well, it would have been a bad choice. Yeah, but also <laughs> there's two two aspects of it, as you know. I mean, it's, there's multiple aspects, but the two main aspects are you've got to have the story. Yes. But then you've got to have the craft of yep. writing the story. Yep. Isn't yeah. that right? Yeah, that's right. Did you feel then that you had the story and you just needed to know how to get it out? I feel more like I had an affinity with language from reading, but I didn't have the story yet. So for me, uh, it was a lot about working out how to write a story. And I had this amazing supervisor who just kept saying to me, just sit down and write something every day. And I'm like, but I don't know what. She said, write anything. Eventually you'll have enough pieces and they'll join together and become your novel. And she was right. And I still use that philosophy now. I don't plan up front. I just sit down and write something and eventually it becomes a book. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, isn't that extraordinary? It's such good advice. It isn't is. It? And it makes it immensely freeing and less scary because yeah. you're just writing one scene yeah. any day, yeah, not yeah. with really any end point in mind, but eventually they will start to connect. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a writer at all, but I, I feel as though I'm a storyteller. I've always mm. got a story going on in my head. But when I do come across aspiring authors, because a lot of 
people will talk to me or ask me about writing. And from what I've learned from speaking to people like you is I just say, if you want to write, just start doing it and keep writing and something will happen or something won't, right? Because there's also the discipline of sitting there and I don't know how you structure your day, but when I, I, I spoke to um, Isabel, Isabella Orlando when oh, I was yeah. in San Francisco last time, I was in person, extraordinary moment, wow. right? Yeah. Oh. But she is go to the office. Yes. Be in the office at nine o'clock yep. and finish at five o'clock. Yep. And that's, that's, it's kind of rare to, to see somebody's approach to writing like that, but that has worked for her over 80 years. So what have you oh, found look, that works for you? I'm a bit the same. I've seen a number of videos because it seemed to me counterintuitive that creativity would thrive in discipline, but I've seen a number of talks and videos now where that's the science. If you give yourself the discipline, then creativity actually takes place in that space. So yes. I have my office. I only write in my office. I don't write in cafes. I have to have it quiet because I've got three kids. So the house is pretty noisy all of the time. So when they're at school, I'm at my office at 8.30 and I write until about 3.45 when the kids come home. And for me, the ideas come at other times, usually when you're doing something mindless and repetitive, like washing the dishes is actually Mm. a great task because your mind's just free to wander. Mm. Me, it's walking and swimming. Yeah, walking. I run. Running's part of my writing process, I always say. So you have all the inspirations doing that. Then you've got to sit down at your desk and turn them into sentences and chapters and a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that clearing the head for artistic space. Yes. Um, and it's so vital, I think. For me, it's so essential every single day for me to clear my head. And I feel as though, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but I have to clean the blackboard. Yes, yes. And I wake up in the morning and have my toast and coffee yep. and then I take the dog for a walk and then I jump in the pool and I do laps and I think, oh, okay, that's clear now. Yeah, absolutely. And I always do my run first thing in the morning. It starts the mind wandering and so the mind knows, okay, yes. it's fine to be bored and to wander and to imagine and then that feeds into the book all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel as though all my best career ideas have come from swimming. Yes. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be a swimmer too. And I used to find that so meditative that you would, scenes would unroll with every stroke in the pool. I am addicted to it. Yeah. That that kind of, and people say, oh, isn't it boring? Oh no. It's, we (gasps) we need to be more bored because that's when we become imaginative. Mm, Yeah. Never, never boring. I think that's a problem sometimes with children and activities from morning till night and whatever. When are we going to clear those kids' heads? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so tell me about writing your first book then and how you got it published. Okay, so my first book was very different to the books I write now. It wasn't historical. It was kind of literary contemporary. Yeah. I wrote that as part of my master's degree and it was kind of the sort of book you're supposed to write when you're at university, serious and heavy and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Sent it out to agents and publishers. Back then, this was 2007, there was maybe four people accepting unsolicited submissions then. Now it's much more open. Got rejected by all of them. So Mm -hmm. I experienced that bracing rejection. Mm -hmm. Then I entered it. It's part of the job. Oh, it is. And you have to know how to deal with it and you have to know how to pick yourself up and keep going um, if you want to stay in the game. Because it's it's the long haul. It's not the short-term win. Yeah. Do you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I've only just thought of this. And it was, they were talking about 
letting yourself be embarrassed. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. And that's, that yeah. is part of it. When you show somebody something, you've really got to embrace that yep. feedback and you will be, even if it's good feedback, you're going to be embarrassed. Yep, absolutely. And I'd never looked at embarrassed as a yeah. kind of a, a feeling. I mean, and the way they were talking about it was that it consumes your whole body and it does, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's part of the process. It is. And that's so true because I got feedback from those agents and publishers and from the judges of the Australian Vogel Award because I was long-listed for that. Oh, And wow. yes, I suppose that was embarrassing because here's these people saying, here's what's wrong with your book. Yeah. But I went, oh my God, now I know how to rewrite it. So I rewrote it for the 13th, lucky number 13th time and then submitted it to the Hungerford Award, a WA prize for yes, an unpublished manuscript. Yeah. So I won that, got my contract with Fremantle Press, finally could felt like I could call myself an author. And they're terrific. They are. They're yeah. the most amazing team of, of women. Yeah. Um, loved working with them. So they were responsible for launching my career as a writer. Yeah. I often think of them, what's that TV soap opera that a lot of actors start from that? Like, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> yes. that is. That and is. they say that their role is to find the talent, incubate it and get it on its way. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Kylie Minogue and all those people. Yes, except yes. that Neighbours. Neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We've Thanks. got it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't ever watch it, yeah. but I know that so many great actors have come from that. And I think Fremantle is part, you know, part of that process, that ecology of publishing that they really, I mean, uh, you know, and they can nurture authors to write till end of career authors and yep. they're great at that. Yes. But a lot of authors start there. Yeah, they do. And it's so nice that they acknowledge that as well as having the writers that they have for the whole mm. of their career, they are happy to be the place where writers get their start yeah. and find some readers and make their way into the writing world. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't mm. it? Okay. All right, so that's super exciting that you get published by Fremantle. Yes. <laughs> and then? <laughs> and then. <laughs> so, and then I sat down to write another book similar to that one yeah. that I thought would be kind of the next book. And it was this really difficult writing process. I didn't enjoy it. I hated sitting down at my desk writing, got to the end of the draft and thought, I don't want to rewrite this book. I don't mm. like it. Mm. Threw 85,000 words into the bin. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. Took That's a deep brave. breath. Yeah, it was. And then I sat in a chair and sulked for a month, yeah. but my sulking involved rereading all of my favourite books over again because I wanted inspiration. I wanted mm. to know what was You were clearing your head wrong. again. I was clearing my head. And I realised that 90% of them were historical fiction. And I thought, oh gosh, why mm. aren't I writing historical fiction if I love reading it so much it was like that permission to not write what I thought I should write because I'd been running as kind of a university degree and instead write what I wanted to write mm. so I began running historical fiction and what's in you like that's the creativity that's in you exactly yeah. I was talking to someone the other day I was interviewed um, for a, a festival and they asked me about the origins of my career and at one point I worked for Maya you oh, know wow. yeah as, as the book buyer right? yeah right um, and then they wanted me to buy, you know, cards. I can't remember. Something else. Cards and rap or something. It was a long time ago. And I remember getting home that night and saying, no, that's not me. Yes. I, yes. I mean, I, I value it. It's, yep. it's fantastic. But I didn't see myself. I saw myself more as a book lover yep. than I did a buyer. Yeah. You didn't and want to put your life into that thing. Yeah. yeah. And I have maintained that throughout mm, my career, mm, as you have. Yeah. 
And then I sat down to write this book, which became A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, my first historical. And it was this joyful, happy, amazing writing experience. Couldn't wait to sit down at the desk every day. And I was like, oh, my God, I think I'm doing the right thing. Yay. Yeah, wow. And how many words would you write in a normal day? Do you you measure that? I do. So I always say the first 20,000 words of any new book is like I would rather be doing anything else than writing those first 20,000 words. I'm easily distractible. I have to blackmail myself to sit down at the desk. But once I get to 20,000, thousand. It's like I know what I'm doing and the pure, joyful, euphoric, creative rush comes. And I can write up to about 7,000 words in a day when I'm in that phase. They're messy, badly spelled, probably grammatically incorrect. I don't go back and fix anything. I'm just rushing on to get to the end because I can see it and I don't want it to run away and I don't want to lose it. Because it's story, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. chasing down the story, yeah. um, trying to let it unravel and go where it needs to go. Yeah. It's funny how different authors work in different ways because we had Damon, Damon Galgot here. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, for the Promise um, Booker Prize winner. Because <gasps> I just love that book so much and I loved him actually. He came in, we had him in person, but he told me that the first process is what he loves, is just getting that story yeah, out yes. and getting it written. Yep. And it's the back and forward that he doesn't like as okay. much as that first process. Yep. So isn't that interesting? It is. Yeah. I really like redrafting and rewriting because I've got the story and I know what it is. I feel less scared in that yeah. process because my job is now just to make it the best possible version rather than thinking, oh, God, what if I get to 85, you know, halfway through and I don't know how to end this book? So it's a bit less terrifying. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. You get your first book published by Fremantle. Yep. Yep. And that does well. Yep. (laughs) What's the next step? So then is my historical that I get published by Hachette. So um, I write this historical novel, have to get a new agent. Do you feel the same way about it? Do you love it? Are you enjoying it? Yes. So I'm loving this whole process of writing this book. Um, Then it goes out, gets picked up by Hachette, which was the life changing, pivotal moment of my publishing life. And and who's (laughs) the publisher. So Rebecca Saunders, the beautiful Rebecca Saunders. I've got to tell you, she is my favourite thing. Yeah. She is so wonderful. Oh, she's mine. And I always say my books would be nothing like what they are without Rebecca. Mm. She makes them a a million times better than what they were when she first Mm. gets them sent to her. You know, the vision that those editors have. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She's she's amazing. So I've worked with Rebecca since 2016 on that very first historical novel and I would follow her to the ends of the earth. Yeah. She knows what she's doing. Yeah, she, she does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now I would think that, that you're known as a fashionista <laughs> and that your work is largely around beauty and fashion and even though it's historical fiction. Was that a deliberate thing or that happened because of who you are? I think it was an accident actually. So <laughs> I just, when I started writing historical novels and I wanted to um, describe what my character was wearing out to a speakeasy or something like that, it just seemed only natural to put her in an actual dress from the time. So I'd go and look it up and I have lots, had lots of fashion history books you know, on my shelf. that's a different way of thinking for most people. <laughs> I know, it's so bizarre, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And so then I would dress her in this actual dress and I would describe it and then readers started to say, oh, I love your fashion descriptions. And I was like, yes, yeah, so do I. It's really fun. I like writing that <laughs> yeah. stuff. And then in 2018, I was writing this book called The Paris Seamstress about a woman working in fashion. And I loved it so much. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, this is combining a personal passion of mine, which is vintage fashion, fashion history, with the writing. And 
that is another really sensible thing to do because I feel like when you write about what you love, the readers can feel that oh, love coming through. Without so, a doubt. Yeah, it's the energy. Definitely. Yeah. Exactly. But also the accuracy. Like I feel that people <laughs> know you and they know these, you know, of course, you know, readers are smart and they know they're reading fiction, but they do also know that the details are non-fiction. Oh, absolutely. And I always love posting photos of the actual dresses that I'm referring to in my books on my social media pages because the readers say, oh, that saves me from having to go and Google around to find a picture. Now I can just read the book with your Instagram opened next to me. And I love that, that they've got the visual there while they're reading. And so their minds are literally totally immersed in the colour, the detail, the touch of that fabric and that dress. Yeah, yeah, it's quite beautiful. I want to talk about the research process. It's not easy, I don't think, because a lot of the topics that you'd be researching, I mean, how much information is there out there historically? Well, there's not so much about the women themselves. There, no. And women historically were always reticent to talk about themselves and their achievements and to write anything down. So you're trying to construct it from other people who might have known them. Um, and there's little tiny details in the historical record that kind of make the whole, the whole story kind of hang together. So, I mean, I always travel for my research. Obviously, during yeah. COVID, that was difficult because I like to walk in the footsteps of my characters. And when your characters are, you know going to the Ritz and walking across the Pont Alexandre Trois and what beautiful a hard places job. like what a that. Hard job, I know. But somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to you know, do it. It makes sense <laughs> to do that. Uh, but there's also the less glamorous side where you're sitting in an archive yeah. with um, documents written in French in front of you and you're, you know, translating them and trying really hard to make sure you're understanding it accurately and correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hard. Lately, there seems to be a book or a documentary, I don't know what, about Paul Newman out there. Have okay. you noticed that? Yeah, I haven't. No. Uh, okay. okay. There is something because I'm seeing a lot of photos, right. old photos. Okay. Of Paul Newman in my feed. Yep. Right. And I'm not a fashionista like you. I yep. do like fashion, but I, I'm not as as refined as you are. But I have been looking at these photos of he and Joanna Woodward, and just thinking how simple they are in their fashion. Yes. What a statement it is. Yes. Right? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because it doesn't have to be glamorous. Oh, no. And Paul Newman was so charismatic and so stylish. In fact, I had him on my mood board at one stage too as inspiration when he was younger for Anthony March in the book. So there you go. You've made the perfect segue there. (laughs) Well, there you go. And also too, what has struck me about looking at it, and I'm going to find out whether it is a book or a documentary because I'd like to have a look at it. But what struck me about that is the importance of fashion because that dates them completely. Yes. Yes, yes. You know, I know exactly when that was. Yes, exactly. And I don't follow fashion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I Historically, think, it's so important. Yeah, it, it is. I think that's the thing about the new look that I'm writing about in this book. You know, you can look at it and go, that is probably from 1947, the new look. But actually, you know what? I could probably still wear that today and it would yeah. still look amazing and glamorous and gorgeous. And I love it that they have that historical resonance, but also the ability to keep going in contemporary times because in a way it's timeless and it's classic and it's just a beautiful silhouette. Yeah. We're out of time, lovely. Oh. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Natasha Lester. Thank you for coming in. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.